Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. It is Tuesday, which means it is Draft Deep Dives Day. And I am here, of course, with my hashtag basketball colleague, my no ceilings colleague, and my Draft Deep Dives co-host, Tyler Metcalf. Tyler, how are you doing this Tuesday afternoon? Nick, I'm great. We've gotten a ton of more basketball that's been a lot of fun. Uh, excited for some of these holiday uh, games that we have coming up and have a fancy new background. So what's not to like? Fancy new background is really the most important part of that. Exactly. But, you know, I suppose the fun basketball stuff is nice to have, especially since the team that I tend to watch the most of has not been all that fun lately. But hey, it's not exactly as if that isn't something that I'm used to. But enough Kings complaining for now. We are here today to talk about the NBA draft, and we are starting off once again with your latest Friday screener piece on Johnny Davis out of Wisconsin, who I admittedly had not followed as closely as maybe I should have before your excellent article for No Ceilings, which if you have not checked that out already, please do. It's a great piece on one of the more intriguing offensive prospects in this draft and someone who wasn't exactly highlighted all that much last season, but has really heated up in a big way over the last couple of weeks in terms of draft stock. But really with Johnny Davis, there are a lot of interesting parts to his game, but I think the thing that stands out most is just how complete his offensive package is at this point. So what are your thoughts on what we've seen from Johnny Davis so far this young season? It's just been a complete evolution and jump in his overall offensive confidence. And it, it I, I don't know if it was, if it stems from him really participating and starting a lot during or over the summer with the uh, FIBA U19 team. But last season he played in 31 games, didn't start any this year. He's the focal point of this Wisconsin team. That's, had some really huge wins so far this season and he's done the impossible and made the Wisconsin Badgers basketball team a fun watch and that's something I can't remember ever saying about them in the past and it's because of his three-level scoring his off-ball movement his competitive defense but the jump that his offensive game has taken this year it's just incredible compared to what you look at last year where he's almost purely this off-ball guard who operates mostly without the ball. He doesn't force any shots. He didn't attack the rim a whole lot. There were flashes that were like, oh, this kid could be something down the line, but it's going to be a year or two or three. For it to accelerate this quickly is absolutely stunning to me. Now, one of the things that you know, with the three-level scoring, something that you start off with early in the article is his three-point volume. And that's up a little higher than it had been. But something that you mention is him taking a greater volume of pull-up threes and hopefully some more step-back threes down the road. The last week has been a great week for our mutual former draft favorite, Trey Mann, in terms of his <laughs> space creation, in terms of step-backs and shot making and dunking all over people. But the reason that I bring up Trey Mann with this is that there are a lot of ways in which Johnny Davis has an advantage in terms of scoring efficiency, just because he doesn't take as many shots as Trey Mann does. But that is one area where if he could be, I don't know, it's a dichotomy that you bring up in the article because 
one of the positives about him as a scorer is how he's able to be so efficient and be choosy in a positive way with his shot selection. The flip side is that given how good of a shooter he is, it would be nice if he incorporates more three-pointers into his diet, especially the self-created kinds of three-pointers. And I think a lot of that is just how strictly he adheres to Wisconsin's system of ball movement, player movement, and using up the majority of the shot clock on you know the, the vast majority of possessions. So even though he's still made them fun, they've still found a way to kind of beat the fun out of him a little bit at least so you Ohio State get, jab it, didn't you? I, I had to I had to I hate them yeah. so I, I I couldn't go the whole podcast with just pure praise um no you couldn't go the whole podcast you couldn't even make it five <laughs> minutes dude uh, technicality um <laughs> but I know so like in, in the Ohio State game we, we saw him take a step back three it didn't he missed it but it didn't look super uncomfortable it was there um and he he created a little bit of space the form looked fine it was a little flat coming out of his hand but it was clearly something that you could tell that he hasn't spent as much time on compared to his mid-range pull-up game or his at room finishing or his just outside shooting off the catch so for him to i think really take that next level that next jump as a premier you know combo scoring guard in the nba he has to develop more of that outside pull-up game but even if it's just pulling up out of the pick and roll when the defense goes under or being a little more willing to shoot right off the catch when the ball swings to him I think that'll do wonders for him because I do think he's a good shooter not necessarily 40 percent plus but on five attempts a game if he's around 37 to 38 percent I think that's definitely huge for him going forward and that's pretty much where he's at right now because then that just opens up the other two levels of his scoring game, which he's shown this year, he's incredibly comfortable at. So I want to discuss the mid-range scoring aspect of this pretty quickly. And let's just say that it would be an understatement to say that there's been a lot of hemming and hawing about the value of the mid-range game over the past 10 years. But really the biggest trend of that, which is the only reason I'm bringing this up, is that there's been a trend away from role players and non-star guys take a whole mm-hmm. lot of shots in the mid-range. And instead, you know, having those players move from 18 feet out to 22 feet. But the flip side of that is that we see all the time in the playoffs that star players who can be efficient from that mid-range area and create shots for themselves in that mid-range area are some of the most important offensive players in playoff basketball. And The thing with Johnny Davis is really just how high his ceiling is, because if he can really work on his step back and pull up game from three and sort of add a few more points to his points per game average that way, you know, then he'll have a lot more space in terms of team construction. He'll have a lot more freedom to take those mid range pull up shots, which for the most part have gone away from role players. But if he's a bench scoring spark plug, that's one thing. If he really does reach his offensive ceiling, then he might be the kind of players for whom it actually is valuable to have them shoot in the mid-range with some level of frequency. And just for kind of additional context, uh, his points per possession, he's in the 89th percentile on mid-range jumpers and the 71st percentile on three-point jumpers and the 80th percentile on all jump shots off the dribble. So it's it's a shot that he's really comfortable with and really good at getting to his spot. And what, that was one of the things that I outlined in the piece was his improved strength and confidence to getting to those spots 
in the mid range where he's much more comfortable shrugging defenders off and picking out this spot and like immediately rising into his jumper at a pace that kind of catches the defender off guard. So that by the time he's releasing the, his shot, the defender is just then reacting to try and contest it. I do think that for for that to be a legitimate weapon for him going forward, he will have to reach that starter, that long-term starter level, like you said, because we don't see sixth, seventh, eighth guys coming off the bench and taking those shots because that's not what they should be doing. That's not the most efficient shot for them. I think he has that potential though. And I I, I know it's going to sound blasphemous. I hate doing player comps and it's not a one for one comp, but in, I, I laid out the numbers of Johnny Davis's sophomore year compared to Donovan Mitchell's sophomore year and the jump and the numbers and the impact and the play style. It's really similar. I'm not saying Johnny Davis is going to be Mitchell, but there are similarities to their game and that physical style of scoring that it wouldn't shock me if we see just a similar path for Davis. And I think the biggest flag for that in Davis's favor is maybe the most important part of his statistical jump on offense, which you mentioned sort of towards the end of the piece, which is that his free throw numbers have jumped Mm -hmm. massively this year. He was taking one and a half per game as a freshman, and now he's up to nearly six attempts per game from the free throw line. And, you know, when I was talking about this sort of mid-range efficiency stuff earlier, which again is a long conversation that I only wanted to touch on very briefly, you know, the flip side of that is that the most efficient offense is dunks, free throws, and three-pointers. And, you know, we would like him to take a few more three-pointers per game. He's definitely a top-tier at rim athlete and Mm -hmm. then the flip side is you know him just being able to get to the free throw line right those are points that are easy you know they're called free throws for a reason but the point being that him getting to the line more often is an easy way for him to generate points and a better way for him to continue to prove that he can be that kind of starter level offensive player it's the way he attacks the rim it it kind of catches you off guard because he doesn't the way he moves around you can tell that he's a good athlete but he's not super quick twitchy with his movements but when he wants to elevate he gets off the floor in a hurry and it's not the kind of two-footed load and then get into your jump it's it's off one foot and he's dunking on guys and we saw him do it multiple times against indiana where he had i think at least two highlight dunks but those are the ones that obviously catch the attention. But what really caught me as the major improvement is how he's using different angles to finish at the rim and the touch that he's implemented on his floaters where he's you know having these off-balance runners and throwing up a 10-foot floater with his left hand, which is an incredibly tough shot. And he made it look easy and like a shot that he does a thousand times a day. And then when he attacks the rim he knows exactly where the shot blockers are coming from and how to use the rim and his body to protect the ball and completely negate their shot blocking ability. So his use of angles that improved touch, it's all really, really encouraging for his improved or it's really encouraging sign that this improvement in his at rim scoring isn't a fluke and it's actually sustainable and something that should be a major strength for him going forward. 
So there have been a whole lot of encouraging signs and good developmental milestones that Johnny Davis has hit so far this season. But for the rest of the year, what kinds of things are you looking for for him to continue to work on? What sort of areas do you think he might need improvement on in terms of offense? And the easy one is one that we've sort of already talked about, which is just upping his volume from three-point range. But are there any other areas where you think he could stand to develop offensively? and, you know, try and get more looks in those areas before the end of the season? Uh, I mean, so the the outside shooting is the big one, and it's just volume. I, I just want to see a little more variety to his kind of shot profile from out there. Uh, I would like to see him run in transition a little bit more, but both of those kind of counter exactly how Wisconsin wants to play, so it'll be interesting to see if – the Badgers kind of just take the leash off and are like, all right, hey, this is your offense now. If if you want to improvise and do something creative and wild and anti-Wisconsin, go ahead, go for it. Um, the other thing is just a little more consistency shooting off the catch. And he's only in the 53rd percentile shooting off the catch. I think a lot of that is that hesitancy to just fire and just kind of his instincts to make that extra pass or attack the closeout and get to the rim. So just a a, a little bit more consistency and a little bit more volume on that, because when the ball does swing to him on the wing and he is open, he's got to be more willing to just kind of fire from there instead of trying to force the ball to the rim when it's not always necessarily there. Yeah, and certainly that's something that you would assume he would be called on to do more in NBA offenses is take more three-pointers rather than, you know, take over the offense. But I guess in terms of him sort of anti-Wisconsining the whole Wisconsin offense, you know, (laughs) the amount of freedom that he's gotten so far already this season is at least encouraging on that front. Yeah, absolutely. And he's taking over 16 shots a game, which is really rare for a Wisconsin team to have – one guy dominate their offense that much. And against Ohio state, he had as many makes as the rest of the team and more than half their points. So, and he he's put his stamp on the season already and on this team that he is their offense and teams are going to have to shut him down. And now that they've played two big 10 games, he's still kind of getting 20 plus a game on pretty efficient numbers. So I, I, I just think it's, I'm I'm always hesitant when we get this massive sophomore jump to be like, mm, is it real? But when you look at the teams he's doing it against, like Georgia Tech and Houston and Ohio State and Indiana, these are good teams. These are teams that we expect to kind of be in the conversation come tournament time. So it doesn't really feel fluky if it was just if he was shooting like 60% from three or something unsustainable like that, then it'd be like, okay, let's pump the brakes a little bit. But the shot quality, the shot profile, it's all just really encouraging. And it's just a leap in offensive charity that I wasn't expecting this rapidly from him. And, you know, I've been banging the drum with Jaden Ivey on this front all season long, mm-hmm. but sometimes you have a freshman year that is, you know, sometimes you have a few good games and your numbers look better than they are. Sometimes you, like Jaden Ivey, have a really bad rash of three-point shooting and all of a sudden you look like you're a non-shooter until you know the next season comes around and you start actually hitting those shots at a decent clip you know I think the difference 
with Davis between freshman year and sophomore year is different than the difference with Ivy, just because Davis has had a much bigger role expansion than Ivy yeah. has, even though obviously they're both now sort of running the offenses there. But I don't know. I mean, sometimes those differences really are just due to the environment and the settings around the player. And sometimes the freshman year doesn't go great for one reason or another. And the sophomore year, they show the kind of player that they actually are. And, you know, it seems like all the positive signs are there for Johnny Davis as a sophomore so far. And, and I do think playing on that FIBA team and starting a lot of those games did help kind of infuse him with more confidence. And then just kind of being in that system a second year and being with those guys a second year and on campus for a second year, it, it can just really help you settle in and get used to and you're used to your surroundings and that new atmosphere so I think he really knew what was expected from him and what leeway he was going to be given. And then combine that with that international play where he, he wasn't outstanding, but he was solid. When you combine all of that, I, I think it's kind of just the perfect recipe for him to make this leap that we're seeing. So speaking of this leap that we are seeing you got a bit reckless on the No Ceilings group chat oh, yeah, your Johnny Davis evaluation. But I am curious with that, especially given that we did release our big board last week. It certainly seems like, as our colleague Tyler Rucker repeatedly <laughs> complains about in terms of having to create big boards in December, it is really <laughs> interesting, though, that the Johnny Davis hype has been so large over the past few weeks that I went from admittedly not having him on the first round of my first big board to now thinking that might look like one of the biggest mistakes on that board <laughs> in a month. Not that there aren't a ton of other potential mistakes on that board, which we'll get into in a minute, but oh. it is really interesting to see how he has been sort of one of the defining risers of the early portion of the college season. It, yeah, it's it's been fun. And I, I think some of the hesitancy and, you know, my, myself included was, okay, this is a Wisconsin guy. Like, the, these numbers aren't sustainable. Wisconsin players don't do this. And this is just early season sophomore jump and it'll flatten itself out. So and I, I, I was the highest of the group. I think I had him at 23 at the time. And after we submitted those, I caught up on three or four more games of his and I, I put him, he's now at seven for me. So you're absolutely right. I got reckless. I just love the way he plays at both ends of the floor. Um, and I think it's really easily transferable to the NBA. And if he goes on a cold streak for two months, then, you know, I'll, I'll probably have to move him right back down. But what he's doing feels sustainable and real and just it, it feels like a, an NBA player. I mean, I'm not going to say that seven is not reckless, but if he can <laughs> up the volume from three-point range a bit and show a bit more self-creation on his three-point looks, I mean, it'll be hard for teams to pass on him at the back of the lottery if he continues to perform like he has been so far this year. Yeah, and and that that's the way I'm kind of seeing it, and I'm anticipating that teams are going to start selling out to try and completely take him out of games. And that'll be fascinating to see how he copes and the way he and that entire offense tend to just move the ball and make that extra pass every time. I don't think it'll be as big of an issue because the ball rarely ever sticks and he's not 
the guy where he's trying to just go score in isolation all the time where doubles really affect that. But he is smart enough to attack the closeout, change the angle, make the skip pass, and then his teammate has a wide open three. So it wouldn't surprise me if we see a lot more games like that Ohio State game where he has 24 points and the rest of the team has 20 and they get blown out by 20. But I don't think any of those blowouts are going to be because of anything Davis does. So before we wrap things up, I wanted to spend a little time talking about our respective incredibly reckless big boards that we (laughs) compiled as part of the No Ceilings big board release last week. So I'm not going to get into too much of the behind the scenes details with that because I'm sure there's security clearances and whatnot that you know I shouldn't be discussing. But there are a few differences between our first versions of these big boards that I did want to discuss. So the first major difference that I wanted to bring up is Tai Tai Washington. And as of last week, which again, I've already admitted that I would change some of the things on there, but hey, we got what we got, right? And as of last week, I had Tai Tai as the 10th ranked prospect on my board and you had him at 22nd so pretty big difference there between you know having him in the lottery versus having him towards the back end of the first round I think that this year's point guard class is getting sort of a bit undervaluated across the board just because it's not as strong as creative classes or Mm -hmm. primary initiator classes have been in recent years but I think that there is some talent near the top. I had Jaden Ivy four and I had Ty Ty Washington as my next prospect up. I think that his shooting touch, I think that his competitiveness on both ends of the floor really make him one of the point guards that I would consider in the lottery for this class. And, you know, there are definitely reasons to be concerned with him, especially after he had that very public, very rough first game of the college season. But I'm still very much in on Ty Ty, and I'm curious why you had him at 22nd. So hit me. What are your thoughts on Ty Ty? I've just kind of been underwhelmed overall by him. I I, I still really, I, I think he's a better player than he's shown so far. So may, maybe that's just me setting expectations a little, little too high or not adjusting them appropriately, given the typical context we see from Kentucky guards. But I, he's barely shooting three... He's at 3.2 pointers a game at just under 38%. And I, I just expected both those numbers to be a little more impressive. If it was that percent on six or seven attempts, I'd be a little more encouraged. But he he doesn't, I don't know, it just, he hasn't been shooting it the way I expected to, him to. Um, the playmaking hasn't overwhel- or overwhelmed me. It's just been an underwhelming experience and I really liked him coming into the season. I think I had him like 12 or late lottery range entering the season and just between his lack of kind of overwhelming athleticism, he looks kind of small on the court, his on-ball defensive consistency has worried me a little bit, but I think there's a lot more there for him. So it might, if he just does this all season, it might be one of those cases where I reevaluate it and it's like, well, he's a Kentucky guard. His role was probably diminished and didn't likely play to what he's actually good at. So let's bump him up an extra 
handful of spots because he's just going to make us all look foolish. I mean, that's a huge part of where I'm coming from with this is he's had the ball in his hands a lot less than I think he should based on his talent and based on his passing ability. And I think, you know, that also affects him not maybe having the three-point volume that you might want because he just doesn't have the ball in his hands as much as you might want. And yeah, I think admittedly I might have him lower in the lottery, like towards the back end of the lottery in future boards if he continues to underwhelm in the specific ways that he has underwhelmed. But given that the ways in which he's underwhelmed very closely overlap with reasons that people have undervalued Kentucky guards in the past... I that combined with my evaluation on Ty Ty heading into the season makes me very reluctant to drop him much lower than I have him right now. And I'm glad you brought up the role because that, that's something I kind of noticed too. And I, I, I don't get why they brought in Wheeler. Um, it just overlaps in with Washington and forces Washington into more of an off ball role that he's not best suited for. And clearly doesn't really seem super comfortable with, at least at this point. So I, I hopefully by the end of the season, Washington's getting more of those on ball reps where he's actually the point guard, which is the role he's played his entire life and looked pretty damn good doing. So I, it would be nice to see him get a little more of that opportunity to really showcase his shooting and playmaking ability because so far I feel like what he has shown isn't up to par with the type of player he can be. So the next player on which we had a large disagreement is a player who in many ways, my (laughs) belief in him has become a bit of a inside joke among the no ceilings crew, but I refuse to apologize for being as high <laughs> on Nikolaevich as I am. The Nick revolution shall continue and there's nothing that could stand in the way of the Nick revolution, except apparently the rest of my no ceiling colleagues. Now, Tyler, you at least had him at 19, which is let's just say higher than some other people on the no ceilings team. But for me, I mean, his, shooting ability at his size he had a wonderful game a couple of days ago against split which mm-hmm. you of course made sure to message me on <laughs> twitter about since it was a bit of a breakout performance for him but he has shown flashes of being the kind of creation hub at 610 someone who probably will be mostly a four in the nba but you know, in theory, in a couple of years can play a decent amount of small ball five is someone who I expect to be really good making passes out of the short roll pretty much right away. Maybe his shooting isn't as good as it's looked at times. And maybe the defense is more of a problem than I'm giving him credit for right now on that end. But I just really believe in the total package for Nikolaevich and I have him at eight. And I had him at eight on our latest big board. And that performance gets split certainly is justifying a little bit of that. But again, you had him higher than some people, certainly with no ceilings, but you did have him at 19, which was where below where he ended up on the big board. What are your reservations with Jovich? The big one is that I, I just need to see more this year. I, I thought the flashes that he showed last year were really enticing, especially at his size, like you mentioned. The, the shooting, the ball handling, all of that at that size is really enticing and in theory is an awesome player. I just want to see a little more 
to know and confirm that it's not just theoretically this guy could be this it's wait no this guy is this and we have just a more substantial sample size of him executing at that really high level because i i feel personally at least i i've been burned quite a bit by these six nine six ten foreign wings who have shown flashes of this really dynamic creation and scoring and then get to the nba and barely make the floor so i'm I'm not i'm not out on him by any means i'm just waiting to see a little more from him is it sustainable or are we just going to get another season where it's almost only flashes yeah that's that's very fair and i said repeatedly on the podcast throughout last season and we'll echo that here that a huge part of the evaluation process for me for players from foreign professional leagues is how they performed in those foreign professional leagues and Mm -hmm. i think that in many ways, those are better translations for NBA numbers than, say, playing in college. Again, not always, but a lot of the time. And with Jovic, it's far, far, far from a dragon vendor situation, right? I mean, he yeah. is getting minutes for this Mega Basket team. And his last three games, he's been above double digits in all of them. He's above double digits in four of his last five. And He has looked more consistent, certainly, than he had earlier in the season where he had a couple of real stinkers. But, you know, we're going to get more of an opportunity to see him than certainly other big wing prospects with passing chops and theoretical shooting that we've seen over the last few years. And and going forward, it doesn't even have to be to that level that this that his most recent game was, because the numbers that he put up and that tape that I, I believe it is Mike Schmitz who who shared it. Um it was really impressive. He looked awesome. So I mean if, if he's doing that all year then okay top ten here we come. Um but even if it's just seventy percent of that but all throughout the year and it's contributing to winning basketball on both ends of the floor, then I, I I'm all in for mid first late lotto um hype for that guy because at that size and that combination of skills It's a hard combination to find. And lastly, before we wrap things up today, I don't want to say too much because as a teaser, I will have an article coming out about this player shortly. But suffice it to say that I have Jaime Jaquez as a first-round prospect. To be specific, I had him at 26 on my big board. You, however, did not have him in the first round at all. And... He was someone who was very interesting to track among the No Ceilings crew because it seemed like there was a pretty close to even split between people who thought he was a first-round player, people who thought he was not a first-round player, and our colleague Evan Wheeler who put him exactly at number 30. But you are one of those who had Jaime Jaquez out of the first round, so I'm curious on your thoughts on that front. Again, I will have more coming on him shortly, but just wanted to sort of hear your thoughts on why you don't think he's a first round prospect at this point. I I'm excited to read that because I, I, I do need some convincing on why he's an NBA guy. I, I love him as a college player. I love the toughness and the grit and his, the way he executes all the little things on both ends of the court on an, an every night basis. So my, my big thing with him is I'm not sure what role he will thrive at in the NBA. And if that role, which I'm assuming is kind of spot minutes 
is worth a first round pick. I think he does a lot of real, well, like I said, a lot of little things really well. And I like him as a player. I, he's a guy I want on the roster. I'm just not sure I'm willing to spend first round capital on that type of guy who I don't see having a whole lot of upside going forward. So obviously I think he has more upside than you do just because I have him in the first round. Right. And I want to be clear. I don't think that he's going to be a superstar type player or anything. You know, I have him 26th because my big thing with him, first of all, the biggest thing with him is his passing and playmaking and initiation on offense this year has taken a step up from where it was last year when I thought he was really impressive as a playmaker and play initiator. So that's a big part of the evaluation for me. The other part of the evaluation is that if you're picking someone in the late 20s, I don't know, I have a philosophy on that, which is that so many of these teams are playoff teams that just need someone who they know can reliably contribute and plug a bunch of holes as an eighth or ninth man. And I think that even if you don't think Jaime Jaquez has the ceiling to be more than an end-of-bench role player, I think that that could be incredibly valuable to get that kind of player at the price that you're going to be paying for an end-of-first-round guy rather than you know where I think he might be in four or five years where maybe he's like a four-year, $40 million contract guy who fills a lot of holes for you. you know, If that's the utmost that I think of his ceiling – then it's hard to bring him higher than the latter part of the first round. But I just think he's someone that can plug a lot of holes for a lot of teams, especially the kinds of playoff teams that will be at the back end of the first round who really just need one or two guys who can be solid contributors to sort of take their roster up to the next level. I, I just I, I just struggle with that because I, I feel like every year we kind of see at least one of those guys get picked up almost as undrafted free agents. And I, I think there's val And I'm not saying Haka should be an undrafted free agent or that he doesn't have that type of value. I, I have him like right around 40. So I, I'm not super far off from a first round grade on him, but I, I, I just think that you can find better value or may, maybe it's just better lottery tickets at that point in the draft, because I, I think these drafts continue to get deeper and deeper every season. And if, these playoff teams, it, it kind of seems like we've gotten a mixed bag in these last couple of seasons of draft strategies where we see some like the Brooklyn Nets take a home run swing on Cam Thomas. And then we see others try and plug that hole, like you were saying. So if they, if there is a team that is that one piece away and they need this 23 year old rookie to come in and do the dirty work and play that kind of small ball four and, box out and rebound and set screens and cut and do all those little things that no one else really wants to do, then I'm, I'm not against spending that pick on them there. See, another part of this evaluation for me is there's just such a long history of players who fall in the draft because, oh, we don't think their ceiling's that high. You know, they were a really mm -hmm. good college player who contributed in a lot of ways, but we don't think it's worth a first round pick, right? And every year there's a Jeremiah Robinson Earl. Every year there's a Xavier Tilleman. Every year there's a Jay Crowder. Guys who were excellent college players who played three or four years and who didn't have superstar ceilings or really even more than fifth starter kind of ceilings. And every year one of those players gets picked and every year 
people within the first 20, 30 games of the season say, wow, why didn't this guy go first round? And Jaime Hawkins just screams that to me more than almost any other player in this draft class. Yeah, and I guess to counter that, those a big reason those guys fall is because there are massive reaches that happen and are unwarranted, like Azubuke going in the first round, which never made any sense. Sorry, Azubuke, I didn't mean to hit you with the drive-by there. But yeah, and I, I get where you're coming from, where it's if you're just going to try and get an NBA player to plug a hole, I admit that Hawkins is probably that guy. But if I'm a contender looking to prolong my run or, you know, it may take, take us to the next level, maybe two years from now, why not take that home run swing on a lottery ticket like a Cam Thomas or someone who may not, or Jordan Poole, who both of us really hated at the time. Yes. Um, I, I, I still think that outcome is a little more fluky than it turned out to be, but um, that's a di- discussion for a different day. So I, I, I think I, I I kind of feel like we view Hawk as, as a similar player or our evaluation of him as a player is not too far off. It's just how we kind of currently value that based on the draft capital in that range. Yeah. I mean, it certainly seems like we both have him within like a 25 to 40 range. And the question mm-hmm. is just, do you value that as a late first round skill set or as an early second round skill set? And yeah. you know, those examples that I brought up, I just would not want to be in the position of, someone who you know took say Jaden springer 28th and says man would have been really nice to take jeremiah robinson earlier and <laughs> granted you know i had springer ahead of jre last year so that's not maybe the best choice but you know i guess the point i'm trying to get across there is just that i feel like there are a lot of teams who say you know oh this player fell to 27 but they're a serious home run swing and sort of forget that the reason they fell to 27 is because a whole lot of things have to go right for that home run swing to go through. Whereas with someone like Jaquez, I mean, I would be very, very surprised if he ends up out of the NBA within two, three years. And granted, that was, you know, my evaluation on Jacob Evans, and I was very, very wrong there. But the flip side is it was also my evaluation of JRE, and that's looked pretty good so far other than that one abysmal Memphis game. So... Yeah, and I, I, so much of it, and I, it, you can say this about any position in the draft, really, but so much of that comes down to context. And if that spot that we're talking about is actually available for that guy on the roster, because if Hakas goes to a team who has four guys doing what he does, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. He's expendable, and okay, off to the G League, or here you, now you're part of this four team trade as two million in salary filler. So. But the then side, you know, I mentioned Jacob Evans. Imagine if Jaime Hawkes had been the Jacob Evans going to Golden State. I could see him just studying under Draymond, pulling the less athletic, obviously, but you know, the Juan Toscano Anderson, like fill every box that I can fill that needs to be filled and learn from Draymond and shoot a bunch and pass a bunch and do my best. Good work, right? I certainly it see could. I don't know. I mean Again, I'm leaning on the Jacob Evans evaluation as sort of my underside for this is how this evaluation could go entirely wrong. But I think just given the baseline level of skill that he has in so many different areas that, you know, this goes back to something I talk about frequently on here, that he can fill a lot of gaps for a team. And the question is just how valuable are the gaps that he's filling? And 
is it worth passing up on taking a home run swing on a prospect that would have a much higher ceiling? Yeah, and, and the eternal it, draft stage. Yeah, exactly. And and can that team f- instead find that player on the vet minimum and bring them in and then send a lottery ticket to the G League for two years to develop? So I, I you know, but that comes down to market and situation and current team construct as well. So over I I do like Hawkins as a player. I, I like the things he does because so few players actually want to do that and doing those things gets you on an nba roster and in a rotation so i I do expect him to be on a a roster i do expect him to at least participate in a rotation um not major minutes not a major role but it, it would really surprise me if he's out of the league in like you said the next two to three years all right anything else do you want to talk about here before we wrap things up i just Check out No Ceilings. We have awesome stuff going up every day. Uh, Make sure to check out Nick's piece. Sorry I'm stealing your plug. Uh, It's going to be really good. Um, I'll have something on Friday again. I don't know what yet. I'll keep you in suspense. Um, And then make sure to go check out No Ceilings on YouTube. Uh, We're doing more video content over there and a lot of really good stuff. Um, And just follow us on Twitter. It's all good stuff. And it's all for free. So what's your excuse for not doing it? There you go. Hard to do much better than that. (laughs) All right. He is Tyler Metcalf. You can find him on Twitter at T-M-E-T-C-A-L-F-1-1. You can find his work, as mentioned, on No Ceilings and hashtag basketball, as well as at Canvas Hoopus. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. And as teased occasionally slash heavily in some places throughout the podcast, I will be doing a write-up of Jaime Jaquez on Thursday for my next Sleeper Deep Dives piece, so please check that out when you get a chance. If you've been enjoying the show, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. Always helpful and much appreciated on our end, and if you have any feedback, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com, and as always, thanks so much for listening.